Bless for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Those were Joseph's words. Many years later, he's quieting the fears of his brothers. After their father Jacob has died, and they're starting to worry a little bit about Joseph will now take vengeance against him. So he's calming their fears, and he's calming their fears by articulating the doctrine of the providence of God. Indeed, a whole story of Joseph that we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks is a display of the providential power of God, of how God uses his own power to accomplish his own good purposes. So let's take a look at our text this morning, and let's consider, we're going to consider about three things, what it teaches us about ourselves, what it teaches us about God, and then what all of that means for us in a practical way. So again, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis 37. Let's see, I believe it's on page 28. And we'll be looking at verse, starting with verse 12. Genesis 37, verse 12. Let us hear the word of God. Now, his brothers, Joseph's brother, had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert. But don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. And the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. 
So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animals devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, and mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Father, we have opened your word. We pray now that your spirit would open our minds to understand it. Open our own hearts to be examined by this word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm not sure how it all quite happens. I, I had the passage of Cain killing his brother Abel. I get the passage of the, the brothers terrorizing, slaughtering a town. You know, I get the, the brothers out to kill their brother. But there's a theme definitely going on here. Well, let's take a look at this passage. And and as I said, there are three things I want us to consider from this passage. First of all, what it teaches about us, what it teaches us about God, and then what difference does that make for us? Now, let's look, first of all, about what it teaches about us. Now, we, we could go at this at different angles. We could say, well, does it teach us that, like Joseph, we also can receive mistreatment, we can be treated unfairly, we can go through trials. Well, yes, that, that is a lesson that is there. Or maybe we could identify with, with Reuben. We, we have these good plans to do something good, and they're frustrated. Well, yes, that's a lesson that we can learn as well. But to truly learn from this lesson, no doubt what Moses, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this, is we got to look at the brothers and how they relate to us. Now, the brothers of Joseph have only, as we already know, distinguished themselves really by their depravity. They've already terrorized the town. They slaughtered the men. They, they pillaged the town. They, they took the women and the children, took them all away. Why? Well, their sister, Dinah, had been defiled. And that reasoning is not sufficient, but it's all the more galling because the chapter after that, we learn of, of Reuben, who goes and lies with his stepmother. And then next chapter, we're going to learn about Judah, married Judah with his children and all, who apparently has no problems when he's out shepherding to go visit the local prostitutes. 
You know, there's some families who have, you know, they have the one or two black sheep in the family that kind of stand out and so on. Well, Jacob's family, it's, it's the one or two white sheep that are notable. I mean, dysfunctional does not begin to characterize the deep-rooted, sin-soaked hearts of, of Joseph's brothers. This is a replay of the story of Cain and Abel. You know, Cain murders his brother Abel. Why? Because of jealousy. Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. His was not. In the same way, Joseph is the accepted favorite son of Jacob. The, the other brothers have a bad report made of them by Joseph, and which was probably a, an accurate report. This is a story that is replayed in the scriptures wherever murder takes place. And it's a story that's replayed countless of times throughout human history. I mean, certainly we can see the murderous hearts today in the, in the terrors abroad, in, in our own country, in the, in the rampant, violent uh, crime that's are in the cities. Again, just last week, yet more senseless killings. But if we're to open our minds and our hearts to God's word, we've also got to be willing to see, not just out there, we actually have to look within each of us. Are we murderers? Are we susceptible to killing unjustly? Well, actually, I doubt anyone here will do something like that. And yet, the possibility lies in each of us. Why? Because we're members of the fallen human race. But even though, to be honest, you probably, I don't know about myself, but you probably will not go to such extremes. Listen to what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said about this whole subject. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, that is the the judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now taking that same lead, our own confessions, our, our larger catechism from the Westminster it comes to the, the sixth commandment of thou shalt not kill, and it takes a list of, of what falls under that. Let me just read some of those things. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding. So, according to Jesus... According to the larger catechism, you see, the brothers had murdered Joseph much earlier. They had already murdered him when they hated him out of that jealousy and envy. And what, what we also see in them is what can happen when we allow that anger to, to stew in us. That anger turns into hatred. And then it continues to stew so that the hatred leads us Well, maybe we're not going to go out and kill anyone, but it will lead us to say things 
to act in ways that, I mean, later on we're embarrassed by what just happened. How did that come out of me that we will say about ourselves? You know, the late great mystery writer, Agatha Christie, she picked up on this very idea. You know, one of her uh, great detectives is Hercule Poirot. And in the last story of his, he finally meets the perfect murderer. The perfect murderer is a man who does not murder. Instead, he stokes the resentments, the fears of others who of themselves would never have condoned to to that kind of behavior, they end up doing the killing. That was the premise, don't you remember, of uh, the character Iago in Shakespeare's Othello. If you really want to get at someone, use someone else. Stir up that anger in them. Now, we, too, have someone who's doing that for us, who's feeding us with hate and resentment. We have an enemy, that's Satan. What are we capable of? Even as regenerated believers in Christ, when we allow those thoughts to simmer inside of us, it can move to hatred. So that's the lesson that Joseph's brothers teach us about ourselves. The seeds of murder still lie within our hearts. Well, what do we learn about God. Well, we've spoken already of the providence of God. And it's an interesting question because when you read the passage, God is never mentioned, is he? He wasn't mentioned back in chapter 34 about uh, that infamous scene of terrorizing that town. And so it makes you kind of even ask, well, where is God? Indeed, why does he, why is he absent in the times when evil rises up, when, when he's needed the most? Now, this is, this is the one time in which the question is actually easy to answer. I mean, God is very present, and he's very active, not only in this scene, but again, throughout the whole story that we're going to see of Joseph's life, that he is leading the events to carry out his clear purpose. Let's go back to the words of Joseph. This is many years later again. He's looking back. He's saying to his brothers, who are a bit nervous now, He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. So there you go. God used the evil intent of the brothers which was to destroy a life to carry out his good intent to preserve the lives of many, including those brothers. Now, this is called the providence of God. It's it's God's ability to move the course of human action so that it carries out his ultimate will. Now, in this case, Joseph identifies that will. It's the preserving of of the Israelite clan. Years later, famine is going to come, and because they come to, because Joseph's in power, he's able to bring his family in, and they are taken care of. Now, that's as far as Joseph could take the matter. 
He actually did not consider other dangers for his family. So, for example, there's that if they had remained in Canaan, there was a danger of their destruction by their neighbors. And remember, they didn't have a very good reputation. There's another danger of them losing their covenant identity, of them becoming dispersed among the different people groups. So what will happen? Their years of sojourn in Egypt is going to protect them. It's going to provide a secure place for them to grow, to coalesce. Indeed, it's in Egypt when this family clan of about 70 people will turn into a great nation. Now, I don't think I'm telling anyone anything new here. I mean, all of us can attest to providence, can't we? Those who are students of history. You look at the grand scale of human history and you see how seemingly small incidents literally change the course of history. George Washington referred to this. In fact, he speaks of one time that uh, he says, if I ever get a chance and I get to retire and all, I'm going to become a preacher for providence. Why? Because of his own witness at what happened in the American Revolution. So he, he capitalized, actually, the term providence because for him and for many others in, in the 1700s and 1800s, they would have providence. Providence equaled God. God was providence. Indeed, Washington was so convinced about this, he said, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this, and he's talking about the strange changes in the, in the war, As far as he was concerned, they never should have won that war. Anyhow, he says, it is so conspicuous in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. And who here will not attest to it into your own life? You look back into uh, your life, you look back at certain troubles that you went through years ago, and you, you can even now say, you know, I see how those troubles worked toward my good. You think of, you know, chance occurrences that led to a change in your fortunes. You know, I think of myself just walking down the street, happening to see a sign of a particular church, and that changed my whole life. What happened? Because I walked through those doors. And you, you could say the same. God knew, you, you have said, you know, God knew I wasn't ready for this, and so he caused these little problems that happen, and so I didn't get myself into greater trouble. You know, God protected me when I did this, or when God caused that to happen. God led me to whatever it might be. God brought so-and-so into my life when, when I was least expecting it. You, you look back into the past, and you can see God's work. Now, I grant it, there are some things we look back into the past and we still scratch our heads. Maybe why a loved one died, why certain misfortunes took place. But on the whole, we believe ourselves, don't we, to be stronger, to be better, to be wiser, if if not happier. You know, the real challenge for us is not looking to the past. It's the present. It's seeing the hand of God at work now, we look out at the world, we see the madness of terrorism, of ISIS. We look at our own country, 
where we see long-standing Christian beliefs and values we grew up in, to how they have moved from being the standard of our society, to now being treated with disdain, even being punished for upholding those. And where is God? Where is God? What is he doing? Why is he not doing anything? Why isn't he stopping all this? Let's go back to Joseph. You know, how do you think Joseph felt in the pit at that moment? Was he thinking, I know God's good intent is taking place here. This is all working to God's will. Well, we don't know. The only thing we know about Joseph is the same thing we're going to see throughout the story in these next chapters, is that whatever happens, he remains faithful to God. He does not slip into the immorality of the culture around him. And most importantly, he does not give way to bitterness. He does not develop a murderous heart. Even when he gains the power, even seemingly the right to do so, and he's got his brothers in his clutches, he did not develop that heart. He did not let bitterness stew in him. It is that kind of heart that truly changes the course of history, both in individuals and the world. That was the heart of Nelson Mandela, who chose to forgive his oppressors after years of being in prison and then to lead his followers to forgive. And that averted the expected bloodbath that was supposed to have taken place in South Africa when he rose to power. That was the heart of the Christians at Emmanuel Baptist Church down in Charleston, just a little over a year ago, who chose to forgive, not only to forgive, to even witness the gospel to the murderer of their pastor and of their brothers and sisters. And so what happened? They stunned a nation, and they averted, no doubt, they averted potential violence in Charleston. It is such a heart in many followers of Jesus Christ who have covered a multitude of sins for the love and with the love of Christ, who have forgiven enemies, who have responded to hate with grace. And we can, we can let bitterness do in our hearts. And what happens? We become murderers in the sight of God, whether we act upon it or not. Or we can choose to forgive. Or we can, we can choose to let God's grace stew in our hearts. And so we become true sons and daughters of our God. And we can do that when we trust in the providence of God. No one's getting away with anything. God is causing all things to work even for our good and for his glory. So we learn about what is in our hearts and what's potentially there in our hearts. We learn of God, of his great providence. You see, there's a third thing for us to pick up on. It's this, it teaches us about God and his promise. Remember the overarching story that's taking place from the beginning with Genesis here? You know, we, we know the rest of the story after Joseph, don't we? You know, as Paul Harvey would say it. We know, they, we know that the people, what's going to happen? They're going to become enslaved in the very country 
that has preserved them. And then what will happen? There will be a Savior who will rise up, Moses, who's going to lead the people out of Egypt, back to the promised land. How does it get its name? It's the land that was promised by God. Who's going to raise up this Savior, Moses? It is God. And God will tell Moses, here is how I want you to refer to me when you speak to the people. Tell them that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has sent you. Why is that important? I'm the God who made that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I am the one who will preserve my people. And I will send you. And, I, and he raises up Moses, doesn't he? He preserves him with that basket. And, and he causes something bad to happen in Moses' life. When Moses is a murderer. And all of this seems to be driving him away from being a savior. It's all, all of it is driving him towards being the right savior. This will be the same God, this, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will preserve his people. He's going to sometimes do it through unseen providence. Sometimes it will be through clear intervention throughout the centuries. Sometimes he's going to send these saviors, and they're going to fight for his people and, and deliver them from their enemies. Sometimes a course of events will take place outside of Israel altogether, and they will prove to be for the good of Israel. In whatever manner, that promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God, he's going to give them many people, that they're going to have an inheritance that will bless the whole earth, that promise will live on, even when it seemed to have died. So that someday, by providence, a baby boy will be born to peasant parents who providentially come from the royal lineage of David. And he will be born under an empire that will provide stability in an otherwise turbulent land. And this baby boy will grow up, and he will have a ministry that will fulfill all of the scriptures providentially. All of the prophecies about where he will come from and how he will carry out his work, how he will die, how he will rise again will take place. And he who has eyes to see and ears to hear can look back over the pages of Scripture and over the pages of of all history. And we can see how all the events, by God's providence, they were working towards the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who did carry out that great work of redemption, just as it was promised since the fall of man. And he and she will trust that whatever is taking place right now, whatever is going to take place, is serving the providence of God to complete that promise. Christ came here the first time to bring redemption. He will come again at the end of history, and he will set up a new heaven and a new earth, So that all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled in him. It's with that kind of hope that the follower of Christ remains obedient, keeps the faith, trusts in an all-powerful providence of our God to carry out his good 
and pleasing will. We give you thanks, our great God, for your sovereign power, for that work of your providence. Carry out your will, not anyone else's will, but yours. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the fulfiller of the promise. In his name we pray. Amen.